The reading this morning will be Psalms 119, 153 to 160, and that is page 570, the bottom of the Pew Bible, to 571. And as you can see, Ray and I are switching. Look on my suffering and deliver me, for I have not forgotten your law. Defend my cause and redeem me. Preserve my life according to your promise. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek out your decrees. Your compassion, Lord, is great. Preserve my life according to your laws. Many are the foes who persecute me, but I have not turned from your statutes. I look on the faithless with loathing, for they do not obey your word. See how I love your precepts. Preserve my life, Lord, in accordance with your love. All your words are true. All your righteous laws are eternal. Good morning. The Old Testament reading this morning is found in Proverbs 23, 10 through 12, page 604 in the Pew Bible. Do not move an ancient boundary stone or encroach on the fields of the fatherless. For their defender is strong, he will take up their case against you. Apply your heart to instruction and your ears to the words of knowledge. Today's gospel reading is found in John 14, verses 25 through 27. That's page 995 in the Pew Bible. All this I have spoken while still with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I give to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. I don't know what you think of attorneys. Good people. Thank you, Eric. But most of us who aren't attorneys would, at least under certain circumstances, find the threat of speaking to one just that, a tad intimidating, a bit threatening. You'll be hearing from my attorney is not exactly a friendly phrase. And if you've ever been in trouble or ever needed to navigate something legally that was tricky or ever had a very uh, difficult contract in which you needed uh, all the protections of the law or if you've ever been through a, a difficult divorce, you know just how important and valuable an attorney can be. We don't use the word so much in English, but in German, the word for lawyer is advokaten, advocate. And we just read in John in our gospel reading how Christ said he would send an advocate. I think that's a fabulous translation. In many places, we hear it as comforter, which is interesting as well because really one who would advocate for us is a comfort to us. Is that not true? Despite whatever disconnect 
uh, our culture may feel at large with uh, the profession in, in some circles. We're going to talk a little bit more about that. We're going to talk a little bit more about the God who advocates for us and promises to do so. That's a part of the defense that he offers, part of the defense that he he promises to us. There's another aspect in which God is defender. When we think about ancient Israel particularly, but I think it could be said in contemporary times and history as well. When we think about ancient Israel, they entreat God to defend them from their enemies. It's part of the covenantal relationship. And as long as Israel is faithful and in community with God, as long as they are keeping that covenant, God is faithful to defend and deliver them. And so there's an aspect we're going to look at scripturally in which God as our defender is one who is our corporate defender, a national defender, if you will. There's a third area that we want to briefly explore this morning as well, and that's the notion of God is my defense in the sense that he's a personal deliverer, a personal defender. We continue to wrestle with the reality of the life we live in this concept. You see, God doesn't seem to intervene and stop all bullying. God doesn't intervene and stop all human child or spouse abuse. God doesn't seem to intervene in moments of accident and prevent horrible injury from all people at all times although we have seen his hand in our own lives. As one who is our defender, we observe that even Daniel states, God sets up kings and takes them down. There seems to be a cycle of violence and warfare, and every nation would claim God as defender. And yet there always seems to emerge those who've lost the most and those who've not lost quite as much. There's rarely a winner. So on a personal level and on a national level, on a corporate level, we struggle with what this might mean. At least I hope we do. We've... uh, we're, we're meeting in a hot day, but our air conditioning is working. It hasn't been shut off yet by the utility company. could happen any minute. Uh, it's a trade-off we get for lower utility rates around here. But people in Texas are suffering to the point that they're having to give away their animals. It's a little humid here, but we're not driving away from home like a bat out of the cave Fearful of the hurricane that is about to sweep down upon us. There doesn't always seem to be equity or rhyme or reason. 
So when we talk about this week's theme and two weeks from now's theme, God promises to defend you and God promises to execute true justice for you. We want to consider the reality of these promises, the veracity, the truth, the power, the importance of them, but we want to set it in the context of the scripture and we want to set it in the context of our lives. Because I think we otherwise set ourselves up for faithlessness on the one hand or disappointment on the other. Neither should be ours. We we should be believers, people who can claim these promises, but claim them intelligently and rightly and understand the mortality and the world in which we live, the mortality we inherit in the world in which we live. He promises to defend us, but bad things still happen in God's world to God's people. And until we experience that ultimate change, that change in the twinkling of an eye, until we enter kingdom life, and not the kingdom of the here and now, but the kingdom yet to be established and to come, we're going to know suffering and loss. We're going to know warfare and pain. We're going to know difficulty. And it's important in the midst of all of that that most of all we know faith. For our God is our defense. Well, let's take on some of the texts that we've talked about today. uh, Read already today. The first one we looked at was from a very, 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 maybe the longest psalm. Psalm 119 Resh, from the Hebrew alphabet, starting in verse 153. David's appeal is that God deliver him and see him in his suffering, because David is reminding God that he has been mindful of the law. There's that covenantal peace. Listen, Lord, I'm doing my part, but I'm still suffering. Don't forget me. Please deliver me. Verse 154 has that key word I wanted. Defend. Defend my cause and redeem me. Preserve my life according to your promise. There David is claiming a promise. How appropriate. I want to remind you, Lord, that salvation is far from the wicked because they don't seek out your laws or decrees. They're not mindful of your law as I am. They're not in covenantal relationship with you as I am. But your compassion, O Lord, is great, preserving my life according to your laws. Many are the foes who persecute me, but I have not turned from your statutes. Another way of saying I still continue to have enemies and they pursue me. I still have trials and tribulations, but I have not forgotten covenant. I have not forgotten your law, your statutes. I look on the faithless with loathing for they don't what? Keep your statutes, obey your law, obey your word. See how I love your law. Preserve my life, O Lord, in accordance with your love. All your words are true. All your righteous laws are forever eternal. 
Now, I've taken some liberties in reading that back to you by way of commentary, but I think you get the thrust of where David is going with today's call to worship. There are two kinds of people, Lord, the kind of people who have no regard for your laws and statutes, who are not mindful of your greatness or goodness or mercy or covenant or love. I am not one of those people. And I want to remind you, Lord, that I am not one of those people. No, I am one who has stayed in covenant. And I want to remind you out of that, that though I have enemies, though they persecute me, though I'm suffering, though I am downcast, though I'm discouraged, though I'm anything and everything that I might experience, you are my defender and you are my deliverer. Save me. That's our deal. You ever talk to God that way? I see a few. We may put it in more contemporary terms, but we look to the heavens nonetheless and say, save me, defend me, deliver me. I love David's frankness. I love his sense of willingness to speak and the power of word. The gospel, the Bible as a whole recognizes the power of word. John plays on it in the most beautiful of passages, as we know. In the beginning was the word. Ah, but there's your play on words. Because the word was with God, and the word was God. What a fabulous writer he was. How quickly he captures the imagination and helps us with insight to see. David uses the power of word. The word of God that comes to the people that is meant to be preserving and life enhancing. You see, it isn't really until Romans that we get a very negative view of law, is it? And Paul is stating that to make a different kind of case. He says, basically, where there is no law, there is no trespass. Right? Okay, let's make this simple. You have a road in the middle of Nebraska that stretches from one side to the other, and there's not a posted speed limit anywhere on it. One person goes 55 and the other goes 95. Which of them is breaking the law? Neither. There is no posted speed limit. The guy going 135 might be breaking some kind of um, unwritten law of safety or some other principle there, but neither are breaking the law. In fact, none of them are technically breaking the law. Where there is law, then there is guilt. Because law makes us aware of the infraction. So Romans comes at this discussion of law from a kind of negative point of view in the sense that because of the law, there is sin. Because of sin, there is death. Because of sin and death, we're in need of somebody who saves us from this. There's that sort of path that, that Paul pursues there. Old Testament doesn't have that view. Law is God's word and revelation. And David calls the law a delight You see, it's 
I've said this so many times before, and, and I'm sorry for those of you who've heard it every time. Um, hopefully not all of you have heard it all the time, but basically the commandments are just such a no-brainer, right? This is the law. Don't kill because you don't want somebody to kill you. Quit stealing other people's stuff so that they leave your stuff alone. You know, Don't sleep with another spouse so that nobody else sleeps with yours. I mean, it just goes on and on. Honor your parents because, hello, they gave birth to you and are like gods to you and your children. Remember the Sabbath day because, believe it or not, folks, you can manipulate life any way you want, and at the end of the day, you're going to be tired. And at the end of the week, you're going to be tired. And there's something to be said for the restorative powers of rest and relationship and service and worship and freedom and all of those good things that go into Sabbath-keeping. Don't covet because it just minimizes the blessings that are part of your life. Focus on those instead. Now, does this sound to you like something terribly odious? doesn't to me. And it didn't to David. And yet, Paul is right also, isn't he? I've broken those in one way or the other. And Christ extends it even further. If you've hated your brother, you've killed him. If you've lusted, you've committed adultery, etc. So when we, when we bring it down to that level, we do quickly see that the law now convicts us of sin, which brings death. So there is that sort of uh, split, if you will. But for David, the law is good. It is revelation. It is God's word. And the idea that somebody would reject that, the idea that somebody would askew that, that they would... Ignore that is unthinkable. And yet that's what Israel did time and time and time again. David personally comes back and says, I'm not one of those. Remember me. Defend me. Deliver me. I'm on your side. And isn't that what it comes down to? Whose side you're on? You know, God knows, but don't be afraid to remind him. He's not insulted. Hey, God, at least last I checked, I want to be on your side. He can handle that. I just want to remind you, though, as you read this text, look on my suffering, defend me, redeem me. Your compassion is great, but... Out of your compassion, preserve my life. Many are my foes, and I'm persecuted. All of that's in there. All of that's part of what David experiences as he thinks about his life. There are other passages that speak to that as well. I want to shift from those to passages that focus on social justice. There is a sense in which God, who promises to defend us, defends us in the context of the weakest first. Our text today from Proverbs 23 speaks to this. Don't move an ancient boundary stone or encroach on the fields of the fatherless. Now that refers to land rights. 
which are a complex series of things outlined in our Old Testament Pentateuch, mostly in Numbers, Deuteronomy, even parts of Exodus. These land rights are specified based on the division of land of the 12 tribes and the law that land could never leave a family. It could be sold for a season, but there were years of jubilee every seventh year, and then there was a major jubilee every 49th year. And land went back to the person who had sold it or whose family had sold it. It could never be permanently lost. Now think about what that might mean for the poor in America today. If the land had been given in a divide, in, divided in some kind of equal way and those in financial distress sold off land for a time but it returned to their families, would we have the persistence and the growth of poverty that we have in our country today? This isn't political in the sense that I'm taking any kind of party's side here. I'm talking about a a fact that has a tremendous political impact in our world, and that is that the rich continue to grow richer and the poor are growing poorer. And the way God designed things was that the poor could recover somewhat, that the rich couldn't endlessly grow richer, that at some point land and goods and things were shared on a more widespread basis. We find as archaeologically in Israel the times of greatest peace were the times when there was the littlest or smallest disparity between the dwellings of the rich and the poor. I happen to be a huge fan of Architectural Digest, which focuses, of course, not on the poor, let me tell you. You find little chairs and it says $2,500. That's well out of my price range. But you nevertheless see great beauty in these things and wonderful design. And of course, on the cover this month is Will Smith. He has just completed the house. It's awesome. But the difference between what he dwells in and what you see in Tent City in downtown L.A. is profound. And I'm not picking on Will Smith. We all live in something profound compared to Tent City downtown. There is a sense in which Scripture is concerned with land rights, the distribution of goods, because it brings about a social economy of greater equanimity and balance. It creates greater social harmony and it creates tighter social structures which strengthen the nation of Israel and enhance the people of God as a whole. It's easy for the rich to speak of blessings. But what of the poor who can't even afford health insurance? What of the poor who can't afford cars to get to a job? or the gasoline for the car they have to get to a job. God is concerned about these things, and if you think he's not, read his scriptures again and again. This text in Deuteronomy, do not move the ancient boundary stones or encroach. Don't take advantage of those who are down, for their defender is strong. He will take up their case against you. 
I love that passage. Because in a world in which there's such great disparity now, there's a sense of hopelessness, I feel. When I look at the social situation we find ourselves in, and I read this passage and I read, their defender is strong. He will take up their case against you. And I just hope that I'm not the you. I just hope the, I'm not the one God is taking up the case against. There's another passage in Deuteronomy 10, 12 to 22. Wonderful passage. I'm going to read it also from the TNIV. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask you to do? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I'm giving you today for your own good? It's rhetorical. In other words, aren't these the things we speak of today? Loving God, respecting him, walking in obedience to him, serving him, all of our might, all of our soul. Verse 14, to the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord sets his affections on your ancestors and loved them. And he chose you their descendants above all nations as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome. He shows no partiality and he accepts no bribes. That is a magnificent statement. Everything belongs to God. Everything, and yet he chooses you. There's no shortfall in God's life. It is out of his abundance and his generosity that he chooses you. That's a wonderful, wonderful fact. Wonderful statement. That's why the passage says, Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and don't be stubborn any longer. Why do we hold out anything against God? Why do we hold any, withhold anything from Him? The scripture says, let go of your stubbornness. Recognize His power and His might, His Lordship. Understand Him, for He is not partial and doesn't accept bribes. Verse 18, He defends the cause of the fatherless, and the widow and loves the foreigners residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners once in Egypt. Ah, even Christ was a foreigner in Egypt. Fear the Lord your God and serve him. Hold fast to him. And take your oaths in his name. He's the one you praise. He's your God who performed for you these great and awesome wonders you've seen with your own eyes. Your ancestors who went down into Egypt were 70 in all. And now the Lord your God has made them as numerous as the stars in the sky. God has fulfilled that promise. But let's make no mistake. He defends the cause of the fatherless of the widows. Psalm 118. 
David reflects not a social justice theme, but as I was speaking to previously, a sense of personal connection. Verse 13, I was pushed back and about to fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. Shouts of joy and victory resound in the tents of the righteous, for the Lord's right hand has done mighty things. Now, we see in this shouts of joy and victory resound in the tents of righteousness phrase, a hint at the corporate side of this personal sense of defender. We get to a kind of uh, larger context, and that's the military sense of defense. Jeremiah 50, verse 33 and 4. This is what the Lord Almighty says. The people of Israel are oppressed, and the people of Judah as well. All their captors hold them fast, refusing to let them go. Ah, but their Redeemer is strong. The Lord Almighty is his name. He will vigorously defend their cause so that he may bring rest to their land, but unrest to those who live in Babylon. I think one could spiritualize this. It's not that much different from what we've read already. When we make our dwelling in God, he is our defender. When we make our dwelling in our own security, in our own false systems of reality and worship, ours is a different fate. Well, Exodus 15 sings a song that we've all heard. It's a song of deliverance and defense. It's a song of God. Actually, Moses to God. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he's hurled into the sea. Modern terms, he's tossed the tank aside. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. That's the song of Moses after God's great deliverance. There is this sense of God as protector and defender. Well, that brings us to the last of our, our theme, and that is advocate. John fourteen twenty five. All this I have spoken while still with you, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have said to you. My peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And do not be afraid. And there is the ultimate sort of assurance. The sense in which we have a God who's looking out for us even as Christ returns to the Father. A God who takes our side. A God who is with us. A God who would ease our our fears and have us set them aside. Don't let your hearts be troubled and don't be afraid. It's carried over into another area of God's outreach to us too. 
John the Beloved writes, My dear children, I write this so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Now, advocate in the previous scripture is capitalized, referring to the person of spirit. This is not capitalized. It's descriptive. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. This is the God who lays himself down for you. And who we understand in a priestly role is on our side as he is as the righteous judge. What does the scripture say? If God be for us, who can be against us? He is your advocate. He is the advocate. He's your lawyer, your defender, your judge. In relationship to him, you cannot lose. His peace becomes your peace regardless of the difficulties or trials, regardless of the enemies that attack, regardless of the circumstances and pains of your life. We have a powerful defender, and the defense never rests. He's faithful. He protects. He delivers. He is present. He defends. And your defender is with you. He's promised that. And while we live in a world in which it's possible for harm to fall, while we live in a world in which the reality is mortality, our defender is also our deliverer, our savior, our redeemer, and our resurrector. For he has conquered death. And he'll deliver us from death. The eternal death. So it isn't easy. This particular sermon I haven't given you simple answers. I haven't patted your backs with false assurances. I've reminded you that in relationship, whether we think of it in terms of Old Testament covenantal or whether we think of it in terms of New Testament and the way in which God dwells in us and works through us, the choice we make to be on his side is a relational one. And in every way possible, personally, corporately, spiritually, 
he's your defender. And when life takes us or gets the best of us, that promise holds to the end. For he will not fail us and he will not leave us. He'll redeem us. And now, Lord, be our defender, for we would be your people, individually, corporately. Teach us the way to justice, that your mercy may be experienced by all.